Chapter Ten of the Hand of Fu Manchu. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Hand of Fu Manchu by Sax Romer. Chapter Ten, The Tulan Nur Chest. This box," said Mr. Meyerstein, bending attentively over the carven brass coffer upon the table, "is certainly of considerable value and possibly almost unique." Nayland Smith glanced across at me with a slight smile. Mr. Meyerstein ran one fat finger tenderly across the heavily embossed figures, which, like barnacles, encrusted the sides and lid of the weird curio which we had summoned him to appraise. What do you think, Lewison? He added, glancing over his shoulder at the clerk who accompanied him. Lewison, whose flaxen hair and light blue eyes almost served to mask his Semitic origin, shrugged his shoulders in a fashion incongruous in one of his complexion, though characteristic in one of his name. "It is, as you say, Mr. Meyerstein, an example of an early Tulinur work," he said. "It may be sixteenth century or even earlier." The Karen treasure chest in the Hague collection has points of similarity, but the workmanship of this specimen is infinitely finer. In a word, gentlemen," snapped Nayland Smith, rising from the armchair in which he had been sitting and beginning restlessly to pace the room. "In a word, you would be prepared to make me a substantial offer for this box." Mr. Meyerstein, his shrewd eyes twinkling behind the pebbles of his pince-nez, straightened himself slowly, turned in the ponderous manner of a fat man, and readjusted the pince-nez upon his nose. He cleared his throat. "I have not yet seen the interior of the box, Mr. Smith," he said. Smith paused in his perambulation of the carpet and stared hard at the celebrated art dealer. "Unfortunately," he replied, "the key is missing." "Ah." Cried the assistant, Lewison excitedly. "You are mistaken, sir. Coffers of this description and workmanship are nearly always complicated conjuring tricks. They rarely open by any such rational means as lock and key. For instance, the Karen treasure chest, to which I referred, opens by an intricate process involving the pressing of certain knobs in the design and the turning of others." It was ultimately opened," said Mr. Meyerstein, with a faint note of professional envy in his voice. By one of Christie's experts. Does my memory mislead me? I interrupted. Or was it not regarding the possession of the chest to which you refer that the celebrated case of Hague versus Jacobs arose? You are quite right, Doctor Petrie," said Meyerstein, turning to me. The original owner, a member of the Young Husband expedition, had been unable to open the chest. When opened at Christie's, it proved to contain jewels and other valuables. It was a curious case, wasn't it, Lewison? Turning to his clerk, very. Agreed the other absently. Then, have you endeavoured to open this box, Mr. Smith? Nayland Smith shook his head grimly. From its weight, said Meyerstein, I am inclined to think that the contents might prove of interest. With your permission, I will endeavour to open it. Nayland Smith, tugging reflectively at the lobe of his left ear, stood looking at the expert. Then, I do not care to attempt it at present, he said. Meyerstein and his clerk stared at the speaker in surprise. But you would be mad," cried the former, "if you accepted an offer for the box whilst ignorant of the nature of its contents. But I have invited no offer," said Smith. "I do not propose to sell." Meyerstein adjusted his pince-nez again. "I am a business man," he said, "and I will make a business proposal: a hundred guineas for the box, cash down, and our commission to be ten percent on the proceeds of the contents. You must remember," raising a fat forefinger to check Smith, who was about to interrupt him. That it may be necessary to force the box in order to open it, thereby decreasing its market value and making it a bad bargain at a hundred guineas. 
Nayland Smith met my gaze across the room. Again a slight smile crossed the lean, tanned face. "'I can only reply, Mr. Meyerstein,' he said, "'in this way. If I desire to place the box on the market, you shall have first refusal, and the same applies to the contents, if any. For the moment, if you will send me a note for your fee, I shall be obliged.' He raised his hand with a conclusive gesture. "'I am not prepared to discuss the question of sale any further at present, Mr. Meyerstein.' At that, the dealer bowed, took up his hat from the table, and prepared to depart. Lewison opened the door and stood aside. "'Good morning, gentlemen,' said Meyerstein. As Lewison was about to follow him, "'Since you do not intend to open the box,' he said, turning his hand upon the doorknob, "'have you any idea of its contents?' "'None,' replied Smith. "'But with my present inadequate knowledge of its history, I do not care to open it.' Lewison smiled sceptically. "'Probably you know best,' he said, bowed to us both, and retired. When the door was closed, "'You see, Petrie,' said Smith, beginning to stuff tobacco into his briar, "'if we are ever short of funds, here's something,' pointing to the Tulinur box upon the table, "'which should retrieve our fallen fortunes.' He uttered one of his rare boyish laughs, and began to pace the carpet again, his gaze always set upon our strange treasure. "'What did it contain?' The manner in which it had come into our possession suggested that it might contain something of the utmost value to the yellow group, for we knew the house of John Kai to be, if not the headquarters, certainly a meeting-place of the mysterious organization, the Sea Fan. We knew that Dr. Fu Manchu used the place, Dr. Fu Manchu, the uncanny being whose existence seemingly proved him immune from natural laws, a deathless incarnation of evil. My gaze set upon the box. I wondered anew what strange, dark secrets it held. I wondered how many murders and crimes greater than murder blackened its history. Smith, I said suddenly, now that the mystery of the absence of a keyhole is explained, I am sorely tempted to essay the task of opening the coffer. I think it might help us to a solution of the whole mystery. And I think otherwise, interrupted my friend grimly. In a word, Petrie, I look upon this box as a sort of hostage by means of which, who knows, we might one day buy our lives from the enemy. I have a sort of fancy, call it a superstition, if you will, that nothing, not even our miraculous good luck, could save us if once we ravished its secret. I stared at him amazedly. This was a new phase in his character. I am conscious of something almost like a spiritual unrest, he continued. Formerly you were endowed with a capacity for divining the presence of Fu Manchu or his agents. Some such second sight would appear to have visited me now, and it directs me forcibly to avoid opening the box. His steps as he paced the floor grew more and more rapid. He relighted his pipe, which had gone out as usual, and tossed the match-end into the hearth. Tomorrow, he said, I shall lodge the coffer in a place of a greater security. Come along, Petrie. Weymouth is expecting us at Scotland Yard. End of chapter 10